well, we're continuing our summer series here, and last week, what we did is we looked at the big, grand story of the scriptures. We were sort of like cartographers, like mapping out the landscape of the grand story of the Bible. And this week, we're going to be more like forensic scientists zooming in with a microscope to understand the beauty and glory of the gospel. And remember, we're going to have a little Q&A time afterwards. So if you've got questions, clarifying things, or an opportunity to share about what God's teaching you this morning, that's what we'll do uh, after the sermon, like immediately right afterwards. So make sure you get that handout of the sermon notes. There's questions for application on the back and some resources. Okay, let me begin with a question this morning. What is God like? If you stop to ponder this question... What is God like? We maybe have some lofty answers like God is holy. He's eternal. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. And of course, all of those things are absolutely true about God. And yet the great reformer, Martin Luther, simply said, the cross alone is our theology. At the cross, we see Emmanuel, God with us. All of the attributes and glory and all the lofty things about who God is displayed in this pinnacle revelation of what God is like. And we need to know God by knowing Jesus, God's son. And Jesus himself explained this to his disciples, um, something we we haven't quite gotten to in the Gospel of John. In chapter 14, Jesus says these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I love what happens there because what happens is Philip turns one of his disciples. He looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus looks at Philip and he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, from eternity, God planned that the climactic revelation of himself would come through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, living and dying and rising from the grave to defeat sin and death and evil, to achieve our redemption, all for the display of his glory, to reveal the fullness of his very nature and character so that we could be welcomed into his presence and enjoy him forever. See, what we're going to learn in our passage today is that the cross of Christ is the ultimate revealer of God. And it is the source of good news for us that we can be made right with our creator, forgiven, redeemed, given new life. And friends, all it requires of you and me is trust. Faith. Faith in Jesus. Open with me to Romans chapter 3. Grab your Bible. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 31. Or if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. Would love to have you see these words and follow along with us. Uh, Romans 3, 9 to 31. We're going to jump into the middle of maybe the most, the most beautiful theological description of the gospel. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Rome where there was evidently some division between Jews and Greeks, these early believers, about who Jesus was and what, that, what, what he did. And, and the Jews felt themselves superior as God's chosen people. They're the ones who had the law, after all. And yet Paul here levels the playing field, making it clear that your ethnic identity or your attempt to follow the rules 
doesn't ultimately deal with the deeper problem of humanity, that we're sinners by nature and by choice. So let's read Romans 3, 9 to 31. Hear these beautiful words. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And he's speaking to the Jews here about do they have any advantage in being Jewish? Not at all. For all have already, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good works, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, friends. Martin Luther called this paragraph... This section of Romans, the chief point and the central place of the epistle of, to, the, to the Romans, and indeed to the entire scriptures. He insisted that the church stands or falls on this doctrine of justification. And one of my, uh, one of my seminary professors named Don Carson, he said that the most fundamental question that the Bible asks is this. Granted our sin... How shall we be made right with God? And at the heart of that question, of this question, how shall we be made right with God? It's the heart of the whole scriptures, he says. And if we get it wrong, we have nothing but moralism and false hope and idolatry. See, friends, this question must be at the center of our 
theology must be at the center of our lives as believers. And it must address our deepest longings and deepest needs and deepest questions. Now, I just mentioned Don Carson. He's done some university evangelism over the course of his uh, life and career. So over the course of decades, he's been on university campuses speaking and teaching and doing kinds of uh, lectures and evangelism things. Well, a few years ago, he was reflecting on some of the most common objections that he hears when he's on a university campus talking to college students. And he says that there are two things that many young people find controversial about the teachings of the scriptures. The first is the exclusive claims of Christ, which Carson says, ironically, is the same charge that the Christians in the first centuries of the church faced because the Romans, who believed in all the pantheon of God, said, how can you believe there's only one, you exclusive bigots? That's literally what they called them. They said, how can you believe that there's only one? Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Christians face this in the first centuries of the church, and we face it today. Only one God, only one Savior. Okay, that's the first one that he found. The second one is the Bible's teaching on sin. Friends, the modern worldview is built on a relativistic view of right and wrong. To be called a sinner is a stumbling block to people who are taught to believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, we're heard, we're told. See, these two objections, these are actually what gets addressed even here in our passage. And so we're going to look at this passage in Romans 3 and ponder two foundational truths about the gospel. And both of them are good news. Okay, first is that we are all guilty sinners, verses 9 to 20. The second is that we're justified freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 21 to 31. So let's dive right in. All right. So go to that first section, which is that all are guilty sinners starting in verse nine. Now, before we get into some of these details, and this is kind of the goal, one of the goals of our foundations series here, our summer seminars is to define some key terms so that we're all on the same page and know what we're talking about. So let me define a couple key terms we're going to encounter today. The first is the word gospel. Now this word gospel simply means good news. It was a word that was actually used in the secular world during the first century, and it was to describe a public proclamation by a messenger who would report from a battle that the king's army had been victorious and that the king's reign was secure and that the people were all safe. So they'd come running from the front lines and say, guess what? The king has some good news. We won. And what they would do is it was usually a written edict that was read aloud in the public square and then posted publicly in the marketplace. That's a gospel, a good news in the ancient world. Now, in other words, friends, the gospel is not something that's private. It is certainly personal, but it is not merely private. It is a it is news. It's a public announcement because the death and resurrection of Jesus have universal implications. For every single one of us. This is why Jesus says in Luke 8, he says, no one lights a lamp and hides it under a clay jar or puts it under a, a, a bowl. He says instead they put it on a stand so that when people come in, everyone can see the light. Friends, light is a public thing. Okay, this is what we need to see is that the gospel is news. It's, it's to shine in every area of our life. Every conversation, every activity, every day saturated with the good news. 
All right, so that's what the word gospel means. Let's talk about another word that we're going to encounter today, which is the word justification. Now, this is a legal word. It means to declare right or to make something right. A, a synonym that we use in the scriptures or in English is the word righteousness. Now, what we're going to see is this word repeated over and over again in our passage. And, and the root of this word is this concept of, of God's righteousness, of his being in the right, his rightness, his justice, and, and how he can make us right. That's what this word is describing. Now, this word justification, when you encounter it, you're like, wow, that's a big word, big Bible word. It may seem like a distant ivory tower word that has nothing to do with everyday life. But I'll tell you, friends, that is certainly not true. There's a, you, you can even look around in the, in the secular world. There's a secular psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And he says these words, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Like a desire to be justified and to be viewed as being in the right. See, every human being has a system of justification. A filter or an expectation or a controlling story of how can we be made right or how can we achieve wholeness. There's another author's name is David Zoll. He, he, he wrote this. He said that, that this system of justification, it's, it's what we lean on to tell ourselves that we're okay. That our lives matter. It's another name for all those ladders that we climb towards wholeness. It refers to our preferred guilt management system. He says, whatever it is, whatever it is in life, it's the justifying story of your existence. It's the desire to be enough. See, friends, we've channeled that longing for justification into all kinds of other justifications of comparing ourselves to others, seeking career success, Finding our identity in our kids, being entertained to death. There's all kinds of things that we can go after to be justified. And let me just put it really bluntly. You will seek to be justified. You will seek to be justified, to be made right or whole. Through something or someone. And the question is, who or what can actually make you right or whole? Who can make you right? Only God. This is why we need to come to the realization as Paul does. Because when he starts talking about what it means to be made right, he starts with the reality that every single one of us are sinners. Let's just level the playing field here. The assertion that all are sinners who need a savior. Every single one of us. So go to verse 9 with me. This is why he opens by addressing a feeling of self-justification by the Jewish people who thought they were superior. They thought they were superior because of their ethnic identity as Jews, but also because they were entrusted with God's law and his promises. So look at verse 10. Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. In other words, no person could possibly justify themselves, proving that you're worthy, earning favor or doing enough to be able to make God happy with you, to be holy in and of yourself. See, let me, this reminds me of a story that Jesus told about a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. You might be familiar, remember this. Luke chapter 18, Jesus says these words, and I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus describes here. Jesus said 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus said this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those that exalt themselves will be humbled, and those that humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, this Pharisee was justified before himself. But the tax collector was justified before God. Admitting he's a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. Friends, how many of us, wow, the world that we live in has made this like pharisaical way of approach so easy. How many of us take advantage of social media platforms to do a little self-promotion? How easy is it today to get sucked into a comparison game? To strut around in public and posture ourselves so that we look good. Friends, the public square has become a gigantic mess of self-justification. And it will poison your heart. This is why Paul confronts those who thought they were good enough based on their self-justified works. And these people that Paul's writing to, these are the Jewish people who had repeatedly rebelled, failed to obey God in the Old Testament. God calls them a stiff-necked people, for goodness sake. And so Paul gives a list of quotations, okay? If you look at verses 10 through 18, and you just kind of scan down, and especially if you look at the footnotes of your Bible, he gives a list of quoting the Psalms and the prophets of Israel, their own writers, to say, don't you see? Don't you see the point? And he concludes in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. It's like Isaiah said, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Our, even our best efforts are tainted by mixed motives, imperfect love, and a feeling to self-justify. But friends, listen, I've got some good news. In the gospel, let me start it this way. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news actually starts with the reality that you're a sinner. The good news starts with the reality that you can just say, I recognize my poverty before the Lord. And open those hands up to receive in repentance. Friends, it starts with the reality that we're sinners. Stop trying to self-justify. Just admit it. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of someone to help me. I can't do it on my own. I need a savior. There's an, old, there's an old pastor named Jack Miller who put it this way. He said, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. 
and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Cheer up, dear friends. You're a sinner in need of God's grace. Are we preaching yet? All right. (laughs) This is where Paul now turns to illuminate this love that's been poured out on us sinners by God's grace through the justifying work of Jesus. Cheer up. Here's the good news. Let's go to the second part. Justified by grace through faith, starting in verse 21. All right, there is a glorious turn of phrase that begins this section. Look at how Paul starts these words. But now. But now. Do you see what he's describing here? He just told you you're a sinner, but he says, but now. There has been a seismic shift. Rather than the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament that could never ultimately save, rather than the self-justifying rat race of trying to posture yourself as a good person, good enough for God or for others, but now, apart from the law, apart from that legalistic treadmill that you're on, apart from your need to earn or to prove that you're enough, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known and the law and the prophets pointed ahead to it. They testified to it. They beckoned for it. And guess what, friends? If you read this verse very carefully, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. It is not your righteousness that has been revealed. It is God's. But now, God's rightness has been made known. This is what, it is his justice, his ability to declare things that are in the right. Your legal standing in the guilt of your sin has been revealed to be in the right because it's God's righteousness. You see, in light of our sin, we stand guilty and condemned. This is why Paul says later on in chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. What you earn from your sin is death. And we need a Savior who can deal fully and completely with the debt of our sin, with our punishment that we deserve. And praise God, there is good news. Let me simply read these words one more time, starting in verse 22. And I want you to savor these most precious words that mean your salvation and mine. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Friends, how are we made right with God? How are we justified? How are we declared worthy to be in his holy presence forever? It is only through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, faith is one of the prime concepts of this paragraph. And in the original language, okay, the words faith and believe are actually the same word. It's the same root word and it sounds the same in Greek. In English, we have some trouble here because the noun faith doesn't have a verb. Faithing? You know, I don't really know, like, what would the word be? So we actually use a different English word, believe. But in the original language, it's the same word. 
And so sometimes in, in, it's good to sort of substitute another word and it'll help us understand this. And I think one of the best words is the word trust. Trust is a noun and trust is also a verb. So let, let me read verse 22 again and let you hear what it would have sounded like to the original readers to hear the same word twice. This righteousness is given through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. That's the good news. To be right comes through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. Friends, this is the level playing field of the gospel. You can't earn it. You can't prove you're, you're good enough for him. It's, it's, it's a simple act of surrender. To all God asks for you to be declared right in his eyes, of your, in the face of your sin, is to trust that Jesus Christ paid the price on your behalf. And this trust is an act of repentance and surrender. And friends, it is the most freeing and wonderful good news on the planet. And it fulfills everything the Old Testament was pointing ahead to. Okay, uh, here, here's what I, I, I want to uh, describe a little deeper on what Paul it, it shows here, on what Jesus has done. Uh, so pick it up in verse 25. There's another key word here that we need to grasp. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, again, we're defining some key terms here, so that word atonement is critical. This word atonement in the Old Testament was literally the word to cover, and it described the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the very top part of the box of the Ark of the Covenant that covered it. And, and this mercy seat over the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was where the blood was sprinkled once per year on the Day of Atonement. It was a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, this idea of atonement, of a covering over for sin gets developed throughout the whole Bible. And there's really kind of two concepts underneath it that we need to make sure we understand in order to get this deeper reality of a sacrifice of atonement. So I'm going to give you a couple more terms. They're on the back of that sermon handout, so you can fill it in here. The first one is the term expiation. To expiate means to remove something. This is the removal of sin. Jesus, in his atoning death on your behalf, Removed your filth, the filth of your sin, taken away, expiated, gone. Okay, that's the first word, the underneath atonement. The other one is propitiation. Some of your Bibles even use that word here in this par paragraph. And it means to, to make us favorable in God's eyes. It means to take the wrath in our place. And this is achieved through Christ's blood. That we would have our sin removed and therefore be favorable in God's eyes that he looks on you with the smile of his grace. And this, friends, is not a legal fiction. It's not cheap forgiveness. Uh, what I love about the gospel is it's not some nicety where God comes along and is like, oh, you're a sinner, but it's okay. He sent his son to bleed and die for you. That's how costly your sin is. Real flesh and blood. Blood flowing, dripping on the ground in the dirt at the foot of the cross. God himself, fully God and fully man, 
the sacrifice that we needed and we are undone. There's a pastor named Michael Reeves. He's one of the best. I've recommended one of his books, uh, Rejoicing in Christ. It's on the back of your bulletin there. He says this about this reality. He says, on the cross, we are given not only the sweet salvation of God, but the pinnacle revelation of God. On the cross, we see how humble, how self-giving, how perfectly generous and compassionate the living God is. For as the cross reveals God to us, so in the same moment it unmasks us. The humility of the Son of God descending from glory to Golgotha exposes our pride in all its foolishness, pettiness, and ugliness. His kindness exposes our selfishness. His grace destroys our earning. His power proves our plight. And his goodness illuminates our moral poverty. What a contrast. Friends, I can't begin to explain to you how incredible it is that God would show his kindness to us in such a costly way. To show his just and right and good nature and character to us through something as wonderful and as awesome as the cross. There's a classic illustration that I think might be helpful here. Let's say a criminal is brought before a judge and found guilty of a mugging. After the verdict, to everyone's surprise, the judge stands up off the stand and takes off his judge's robe and walks down and says, scooch over and stands and says, I will take that punishment. And instead, setting the criminal free, this is what God has done for you, dear friends. Now, friends, this is a, a, an incredible way to picture this, but it doesn't even capture the whole scope of what's going on. See, unlike judges in our legal system, God is not merely an independent arbiter of right and wrong. He is the source of all that is right. He is the one whom the law is a mirror of his very nature and character. His own essence and being are that he is righteous. He is right and just and good. And so every violation of the law is an offense against God himself. This is, when, this is why when Nathan confronted King David about his adultery with Bathsheba, David wrote this in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you and you only, he says to God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge, David says to the Lord. Friends, you need to grasp this so clearly. When you sin, God is the most offended party. And so it is even more radical that God himself would be the substitute. Paying your debt. Because he's not only the judge, he's the jury and the prosecution, and he's the offended party in the entire situation. 
And yet he still steps in to willingly buy you back to redeem you from the sentence of death that you deserved. But not only that, let me take it even one step farther. Not only is your sentence commuted and your record wiped clean of your crimes, but you are now clothed in the righteousness of the judge himself. Whoa! You are given the status of holy in God's sight, gifted the same rightness as the very creator of the universe. Whoa! You're not just merely innocent or neutral at that point. Like, congratulations, you get to go scot-free. Congratulations, you get to walk away with the great reward of being looked on with the righteousness of God himself. Friends, this is God's justice, his rightness, his justification, his righteousness on full display. And it's so shocking because we're so unworthy. There is no unrighteous, not even one, not you or me. It is pure grace. And friends, when we stand before God at the judgment, when you trust in Christ simply by faith, not by your works, you will be looked upon as not merely not guilty, but the verdict is already in that you are righteous in God's sight and it is credited to your account by faith. Wow! See, friends, this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, leaves Paul with a simple application. Look at verse 27, and this is where we'll land right now. Here's the simple application. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. If it was something that you could do to earn God's favor, then we could be proud about ourselves. But because we are impoverished, humble, surrendered sinners, we get to stand on that level ground and say, guess who we get to boast in? Jesus, because our trust is in him. So friends, why is the gospel good news? The reward, maybe I'll put it a different way. The reward of having been made right, of justification, the reward of being justified by Christ's blood is that we get Jesus himself. He is the fount of all goodness and beauty and truth. And he pays your debt. And he gives you the most precious and glorious gift that we get to be with him forever and be in awe of him to know his power and his love and to rest in his presence forever. That is the good news. There's a a song that's been written recently that's called Grace. It's by a a group called City of Light. And here's how they articulate it in lyric. And we'll close with this. Your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. By grace, 
I am redeemed. By grace, I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what great glory there is in the good news that you, even though we're so lost in our sin, we're dead, we can't make ourselves come alive, that you, by your grace, reached out to save us with a costly sacrifice, paying fully our debt, so that not only are we wiped clean, expiated of our sin, but we are then given the favor of God, righteousness, you look on us with the same love that you look upon your own son, Jesus, that those who trust in faith in this room have these words said upon them, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased because of Jesus' work on our behalf. Lord, thank you that you are pleased to show your favor and your grace and love upon us. Let us give you all the glory and praise for this good news. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.